0: Have you ever gotten away with something that you knew was wrong and nobody else knew? Well, at least nobody that was going to talk about it, right? I don't know if you're anything like me. You've probably felt that gnawing reality that you made a terrible decision. That moment that you did something you said you'd never do. Your stomach kind of twists up in knots, your pulse races, and the one thought pounding through your brain is, don't tell anyone. We want desperately to hide from it, but it's there. We shove it down, we'll try to justify it, ignore it, do everything in our power never to talk about it, but it just keeps coming back. I wonder if that's how King David felt for the better part of a year. King David was the greatest king in the history of the kingdom of Israel. He had unified the Israelite tribes under his rule, conquered and established Jerusalem as its capital, expanded the boundaries of his kingdom through numerous military conquests, and vastly increased the power and wealth of his nation. But David had a problem. A fatal flaw, if you will. David really liked beautiful women. Up to this point in his career, he had accumulated not two, not three, but seven wives that we know by name, and likely others. Literally, he could have gone to bed with a different wife every night of the week. And one day, David went out for a walk on his palace rooftop. Now, his army and commanders were elsewhere. They were fighting a war with a neighboring nation, which is where David probably should have been. But he decided not to go this year, and instead, he chilled out at the palace. And on his rooftop stroll, he looked out over Jerusalem and just so happened to see a really gorgeous woman taking a bath. Now, David had a choice. Give in to this visual stimulus or be content with what he had. I mean, he already had seven wives at least, right? But when you're the king and nobody can tell you no, well, that's the problem with at least finding out who she is, right? I mean, if she's single, bring her over. So David sent some men to figure out who she was problem was she wasn't single. She wasn't single at all. She was married, and not only that, to one of David's closest friends. A guy by the name of Uriah the Hittite had served with David through numerous military battles, was actually referred to as one of David's mighty men, a group of 37 of David's most fearsome warriors. Unfortunately, David was undeterred by this revelation He had Bathsheba brought over to the palace anyway, where he had sex with her and got her pregnant. Upon hearing that she was pregnant, he got a little concerned. I mean, this is a problem. Her husband's off at war, and she's at home, and now she's pregnant. That's an issue. So he decides he's going to call Uriah back from war. So he sends off messengers, has Uriah brought home, because he figures, you know what, hey, if I send him home, he sleeps with his wife, it'll all look fine. So Uriah comes home and David says, Uriah, you fought notably, proud of you, I want you to go home, put your feet up and have some fun. Just relax a little bit. But Uriah, out of a sense of duty to David and to his fellow soldiers, refused to go home and sleep with his wife because, hey, the rest of the guys are out there fighting. They can't do what I'm getting to do, so I'm not going to take advantage of it either. Slept on the palace steps that night. David was bummed out by this choice. So he decides, you know what, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll have Uriah over for dinner and I'll get him good and drunk. And you know, cause of course a drunk guy is going to lose his values a little bit. And, and the, the likelihood of going home and having sex with his beautiful wife will be way too much to pass up. So that's what David does. He has him over, gets him blistering drunk and says, Hey, Uriah, head on home, man. But drunk as he was, Uriah still refused to go home. David, seeing that Uriah wasn't going to help him cover his tracks, wrote a letter to Uriah's commander, ordering him to put Uriah on the front line at the worst spot in the battle so that he would be killed, and then. And then he handed that letter to Uriah, knowing at this point he had way too much integrity to read it. And sent him off to die. After Uriah was killed, David married Bathsheba so that the child would look legitimately his. And proceeded to go on as if nothing happened for the next eight or nine months. Think about that. David lived a lie for nine months. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine the constant reminders of what he had done? Can you imagine the thoughts that passed through his brain every time he saw Bathsheba? Can you fathom the kinds of guilt that sprung up in him every time someone mentioned Uriah's name in passing? But he acted as if nothing was wrong until after the child was born. It wasn't until the prophet Nathan came to David and challenged him to his face that David actually admitted what he had done. But make no mistake, he knew it all along. I wonder, what lies are we living today? What do we know that nobody else knows? What do we know is true about us that nobody else knows is true when we walk in this place and look for all the world like we have it all together? What's true that we're all lying about? This morning, we're in week three of a lesson series entitled Fully Functioning Followers Grow. And in this series, we're taking a deep dive into the four practical spiritual disciplines, prayer, confession, fasting, and intentional rest. And what we're learning in this series is that if we practice these disciplines consistently enough, they will help us engage with God and grow to be more like Jesus. During the series, we've been using 1 Timothy 4.15 as our focus verse. It's going to come up on the screen. I want you guys to recite it with me. Here we go. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. In this verse, Paul is telling his young friend Timothy to practice things that will help him grow as a Christian. And one of the disciplines that will challenge us to grow as much or more than any other is the discipline of confession. So we'll start this morning by asking, what do you think of... When you think of confession, what do you think of when you think of confession? Now, for some of you, what probably pops to mind is, well, that's, that's, like, that's like something that Catholics do, right? right? You've all seen the movie where somebody slides into a confession booth and they got the little screen and there's the priest on the other side. We've all seen this, right? And yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of a recognizable part of our cultural understanding of it. But I asked that question the other night at, at the programming meeting. What do you think of when you think of confession? Somebody said this, uncomfortable. <laughs> no kidding. Right? The idea of sharing your faults and failures with God or with others is, is deeply uncomfortable. No? No? Just thinking about some of the stuff that we have done makes us uncomfortable. Some of you might have used different words. Scary, bothersome, weird. <laughs> uncomfortable seems to cover it, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. We all want to feel good about us. We all want to think the best about us and really, really want others to think the best about us, right? And if we told them the truth, well, would they? I want to define confession for us this morning it's admitting and accepting responsibility for my sin. Confession is admitting and accepting responsibility for my sin. You know, I think in our culture, we're a lot more used to apologies than confession, aren't we? I mean, we've all seen this on TV. Like, a public figure does something wrong, a reporter finds out about it, they write an article. The article gets read by hundreds of thousands or millions of people. People get upset about it, and all of a sudden now this public figure comes out and says, I apologize. We've all seen this, right? We're a lot more comfortable with that. But rare in our world is that person who will own the truth about themselves before they publicly have to. Right? Rare is the individual who will deal with the truth about themselves before there's no choice. I mean, even David went on for nine months or more before Nathan confronted him with the truth. And so this morning we're going to dig into this idea of confession. What is it? Is it necessary? And why does God seem to call us to do it? Now, before we can dive into confession, we really have to understand a couple of the terms. Confession is admitting and accepting responsibility for my sin. So, in in other words, we have to understand the concept of sin if we're going to understand the biblical perspective on confession. So, sin is any behavior or thought in which I choose to disobey God. Sin is any behavior or thought in which I choose to disobey God. So when you and I do something or think something that is intentionally or willfully in opposition to God, we are, in fact, sinning. But it's interesting, when you dig down into the Greek and Hebrew words that are translated sin in the English dictionary, there's a word picture that comes out, and it goes like this. Sin means to miss the mark. In the original languages of the Bible, sin, the word that we have translated as sin, means to miss the mark. Think of it like a target. If I'm going to take a bow and arrow and I'm going to shoot at this target that's up on the screen, what am I shooting at? The what? The bullseye. Why? 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 Because it's the smallest and hardest part of the target to hit. And so if, in fact, you're going to hit it, you have to shoot with near perfect skill and technique, achieving almost a perfect result. Now, let me ask you, whose mark? Whose mark is it? Whose mark are we shooting at? Is it my mark? Do I decide what the target is? Does my culture decide what the target is? I mean, what if I want to, you know what, red's my favorite color, so I want to shoot it red instead. i will want to shoot for that bullseye. I'm going I'm to hit the red. You see, the truth is that behaviorally speaking, God is the bullseye. God is the bullseye. God's character is perfect. God always does the right thing. God is always thinking the right things. God always has the right motives. And so for us to do what is right is to shoot at God. And for us to not shoot at God is to miss the mark that God said is the goal. When we shoot at that which is not God... We miss the mark. We sin. Okay? And when we miss the mark, the Bible tells us that we should confess. So this morning, we're actually going to read David's confession for the very sin that I described to you earlier. If if you look up Psalm 51 in your Bible, there's going to be a subtitle underneath it that reads something like this. A psalm of David. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David wrote what we are about to read today as his personal confession for the evil that he had done. And in these words this morning, we will see the anguish of a man who had screwed his life up badly and deeply wanted to be forgiven. We'll read the words of a man whose behavior had become disastrously filthy, and he wanted to be clean. Now this morning, on your outline, um, there's, there's, a, there's a misprint in there. I forgot to take out a section, so there's something, there's a, the first set of blanks in there, ignore that, okay, because I made a mistake and didn't take it off the outline, so my apologies. All right, but this morning, we're going to start with what confession assumes, what confession assumes? In other words, there are five things that have to be true if confession is going to benefit us. And we have to understand these five things if we're going to practice confession well. So the first thing that confession assumes is that God is merciful. The first thing that confession assumes is that God is merciful. Now, by show of hands, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. All right. How many of you thought we were going to start there this morning in a lesson about confession? See, the reality is we have to start there. We have to start there. The first thing we have to believe, the first thing we have to know in order to make any kind of legitimate confession is that there is a God on the other end of that confession who legitimately wants to forgive. Look at what David says in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David assumes that there is a God on the other end of this confession he is about to give who is willing to show him mercy, who is willing to forgive him for what he's done. Look at the phrases he uses. Have mercy unfailing love, great compassion. He is, he is saying to God, I know that you're a God who is merciful. I know you are a God that has great compassion. I know you have unfailing love for me, even when I don't do things that deserve it. Guys, think about, think about why we're afraid to admit when we've made a mistake at work. Why are you afraid to tell your spouse when you forgot that thing they asked you to do and it was clear it was very important to them that you do it? Why do we feel afraid when we have to tell a friend that we've let them down? Isn't it because, at least just a little, that we're not totally sure they're going to give us a second chance? Isn't it because we're just a little bit afraid that they might not forgive us? In order to confess, we have to believe in the possibility of a God of forgiveness on the other side of confession. We have to start there. Said another way, confession challenges our belief in forgiveness, Confession challenges our belief in forgiveness. If you don't believe that you can be forgiven, then why on earth would you confess? Why would you do it? Why would you own failure if you don't think there's a chance that somebody's going to give you another shot? You would hide it. You would hold it in. You would tell no one if you didn't think there was at least a chance you could be forgiven. But, you know, I think there's a flip side of this that we need to kind of think about for a second. I believe it's fair for us to absolutely question a person who, who says that they believe in a God of mercy and in a God of forgiveness if they don't practice Confession. I believe it's reasonable for us to question. Listen, I'm not saying that if you don't regularly practice confession, you aren't a Christian. I'm not saying that. But honestly, think about it. How strong is your belief in in, in, in God's forgiveness if you never test it by confession? How strong is our belief in God's loving and merciful nature if we never actually tell Him the truth about who we are? If we never own who we are. Guys, the truth is, God is a merciful God. God is a forgiving God, and He wants to prove it to us by having us bring Him the areas that we sin and mess up. Check this verse out. This is Proverbs 28. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if, circle that word, if if they confess and turn from them if we confess our sin and turn from them he says they will receive mercy it's a it's a promise right you turn from your sin you confess it you tell the truth to god and you receive mercy confession assumes god is merciful but confession also assumes something else and that's number 2 i am a sinner Confession assumes I am a sinner. Look at verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So, so David starts and he's like, I, okay, God, I need mercy. Have mercy on me, oh God. And, and, and let's be honest. He needs God to be merciful because the reality he's got no good behavior to stand on at this point. He can't look at God and say, hey, God, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, this thing with Bathsheba was no 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 huge deal, right? He can't say that. He needs God to be merciful because mercy's all he's got. The three main words throughout the Old Testament that are used to refer to the concept of sin are iniquity, sin, and transgression. And he uses all three of them in this verse set alone. Why? Because he's repeating over and over the reality that this is who he is. He is a sinner. Now that's different than saying, I sinned once isn't it? It's kind of different when you say, yeah, I did this wrong thing once, versus saying, this is who I am. This is my nature. This is my being. This is myself. I am a sinner, versus, yeah, I sinned once. You see the difference? See, David is owning that this is who he is. And he says it in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What he's saying is that his human nature, who he is to the very core, is bent toward himself and away from God. Now, let's be honest. David wasn't murdering anyone or lying to anyone in the womb. Okay? Right? He didn't come out spouting gossip or committing adultery. No preborn children have the ability, the consciousness necessary to actively sin. Okay? So no, he wasn't committing sin in the womb. However, even from conception, all of us are sinners in training. You see that? From the very beginning, we are sinners in training. We have a a selfish nature that drives us to do what we want all the time. And when you combine that selfish nature with all of the other selfish people around us all the time, we have an environment perfectly constructed for us to become the sinners that we are. This isn't just that I sinned once. This is who I am. And confession assumes that this is who you and I are. Simply put, guys, we are sinners because we want to be. We are sinners because we want to be. And the reality that we have to face is that our sin is our responsibility. My sin is my responsibility. Look at that passage again. Wash away all my iniquity. You might circle that word, iniquity, and cleanse me, underline, from my, underline that one, sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. A whole six times in two verses, he owns the fact that What he did with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah were his fault. Not his parents' fault, not his environment's fault. God didn't make him do it. He wasn't genetically predisposed to adultery. He simply made a choice to have sex with a woman that wasn't his wife. And he had her husband murdered because he wanted to. And guys, we do the same thing. We sin and we make choices. Now, we may not have the same level of consequences. We may not sin in the same way. But the reality is that you and I make choices. And this, this isn't on your outline. I just want you to write this down. It's going to come up on the screen. Write this down. Don't let my language make excuses for my choices. Write that down. Don't let my language make excuses for my choices. All right, we've all watched the interview on CNN or Fox News, right, where the celebrity or politician or whatever steps up and says, I apologize, I had a momentary lapse in judgment. I made a mistake. I dropped the ball. no. I made a choice. I sinned. Don't let your language make excuses for your choices. See, David didn't do that. My, 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 my sin. Why? Because it was his. Over and over he repeats, it's my fault. I don't get to blame this on anyone. David owned it, and he recognized it. And he not only recognized that the sin was his, but he recognized that his sin was ugly and brought sorrow on himself and God and others. And guys, the truth about it is that our sin really is ugly. Look at him. Look at the passage. He says, he says wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me. Wash away. Cleanse. What, he, what he's saying is, my sin has made me dirty. It left a major stain on his character and he wanted to be clean. But, but but guys, it not only hurt him. And it not only offended God, because Nathan sent, you know, the prophet or I'm sorry, God sent the prophet Nathan to, to confront David about it. so so his sin definitely hurt David and it definitely hurt God, but his choices brought awful consequences on the lives of others. You see, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You know why he said that? Do you know why he said that? If you read the stories from the latter half of David's life, the realities of this sin were all over the place. The consequences for this sin were everywhere. The son that was born to him in Bathsheba died. Another one of his sons raped one of his daughters. Another son murdered some of his other sons. And then ultimately, one of his sons, Absalom, rebelled against him and tried violently to take the throne from David, leading an army to try to kill his own dad. All of that from this. All of that as a consequence of this. Guys, our sin is ugly. And it brings sorrow and consequences on our lives and on the lives of others. And if we're going to confess, we can't blame it on anyone else. Confession assumes that we are the sinners, but that's not all. Confession assumes, and this is where it gets hard, that God is right to judge our sin. Confession assumes that God is right to judge our sin. Think about it. When you confess, when you get in front of God and you say, Wow, God, I really screwed that up. Aren't you automatically taking on and and, and understanding and recognizing that God has a right to punish that? Just by the very nature of doing confession, just by the very nature of you standing in front of God and saying, I messed that up, you're acknowledging that he has the right to punish it. You're acknowledging the, right to, the fact that you've offended him. David believed this too. Check out what he said in verse 4. Against you, he's talking to God here, you only have I sinned. Now, let me, let me clarify this for a second. What he's not saying is that he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. He did sin against them. But here's the reality. What he's saying is that ultimately all of our sins, even the ones that we commit against others, are committed against God. They're offenses against God. But he he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right. Circle that phrase. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. What he's saying is that God has the right to condemn sin. And when we violate his will, when we do that which he has told us not to do, we rightfully should experience judgment. Look at David. He's pulling no punches here. In effect, what he is doing is he is saying, God... You would be absolutely correct if you condemned me to hell for what I've just done. God, you would be right if you sent me to hell for this. Do we think that? Do we pray like that? Do we stand before God and go, "You know, you would be right to judge me." Do we stand before God and say, "You would have a point if you didn't give me a second chance." I think so many of us we we just we just get caught up in this whole, "I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. I don't live life like that. I don't make these mistakes." But the reality is it doesn't matter. We're sinners, and God has the right to judge that. A real, honest confession requires that we deal with the truth that our our sins deserve nothing but punishment from God. But David goes on. He says, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. You see, the fourth thing that confession assumes is that God desires right actions, right thoughts, and right motivations. God desires us to be the kind of people who do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. It's a concept that Christians often refer to as holiness, you can think of holiness in terms of being like God. One aspect of David's story I want to be crystal clear about this morning. David had a choice. His moment of adultery and murder was not faded. It was not predetermined. He could have and should have done something different. The same goes for each of us. God wants us to be really good. He wants us to be people who act right and think right and have the right kind of motives for the for the for the things that we do. He wants us to be like that. He wants us to be right. He wants us to be good. He wants us to be holy. At no point is God up in heaven going, I'm going to make them screw up today. He ain't got no choice but to send today no, in James 1.13, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You are not forced to do wrong things. You have a choice. And what God really wants is for you to choose him. He wants you to, sh- to shoot for his mark. And when we confess, we accept that we have fallen short of what He wants for us. And finally, when we confess, we assume that God is able to change us. You see, when you and I get in front of God and we acknowledge what we've done, we're not only assuming that we're sinners and that we need God to be merciful and that He has the right to judge us, but we're also accepting that God has the ability to help us avoid those kind of failures in the future. Look at David's words. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Um, hyssop was like a shrub that they used as, as a part of the ceremonial cleansing processes in the temple. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David is, is crying out. He's begging God to make him clean. He's acknowledging that he is a person who by nature is screwed up, and he's asking, begging God even, to make me clean again. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. He's saying, I just just want to feel alive again. I just want to not feel crushed by the weight of the sin that i 'm carrying around. I just want to feel hopeful and joyful again. Will you please make that happen in my life? And Then he says this in verse ten. I would encourage you to to, to just circle this phrase: Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Guys, do we pray like that? Do we we beg God to make us better? Do we pray wholeheartedly that God would change us? Do we pray consistently over and over that He would make us different? That's what David is doing. With all of his heart, he is begging God to help him be different. I wonder, I wonder, do we pray like that? See, here David is taking responsibility for his sin because he doesn't want to stay the same. He doesn't want to be a man with an adulterous heart anymore. He doesn't want to be a man with a murderous heart anymore. And so he begs God to help him change. Someone said something to me the other night. They asked, they asked a really important question in the programming meeting. We were talking about this lesson. We were getting ready. And and uh, and somebody asked me this, this question. He said, J.D., if... If God knows all the wrong things I've ever done, which, which I believe and know to be true, okay, so that, that's a true statement. If God already knows everything I've done, then why do I have to confess it? Why do I have to talk about it? Why do I have to bring it up if God already knows? Let me ask you a question. Um, Which problem in my life do you think I'm going to fix first? Okay? The problem that causes a fight with my wife every single time, like every time it becomes like an argument fight, you know, I mean, those of you that are married, you know what that is, right? Right? Am I going to fix that problem first? The one that causes a fight every single time it comes up. The one, the thing that I do that makes her so mad that she just can't contain herself. So, am I going to fix that problem first? Or am I going to fix the problem that just kind of gets me a, all right, JDB and JD and nothing else. Which problem am I going to fix first? Am I not going to fix the problem that causes me the gigantic fight? Am I not going to focus my attention on the things that gets me in an argument every single day? You see, the reality is confession has a purpose. Confession is intended to lead to change. We confess so that we can sin less, okay? We confess so that we can sin less, you know, the, point of, the point of confession is bringing up the things that we don't want to talk about so that we can allow God to make us uncomfortable enough to fix them. Some of us guys struggle to overcome our sins. It takes forever for us to overcome bad habits. Maybe you're like me, right? I, I have over the course of my life been a pretty regular journaler. Let me tell you how annoying it is to crack open a journal from five years ago and realize that I'm praying about the same stupid stuff that I'm doing now. How troubling it is in my heart and mind to realize that five years ago I was struggling with this and oh, yeah, I'm about to write about this today. We confess so that we're not alone with that stuff, so that we don't isolate with that stuff, so that we're easily able to just keep doing the same thing. The point of confession is to get that stuff in front of our eyes so that we will fight it and work against it and do everything in our power to try to change it, begging God along the way to give us the power to do so. But confession can also help us another way. It goes like this. We confess the small to avoid the big. We confess the small to avoid the big. Think about it. What if David had confessed his reliance upon sex and women after his second wife? Would he have had seven or eight when you count Bathsheba? What if he confessed the sin of lust? For Bathsheba before he had sex with her? What if he came down off that roof and said to one of his buddies, Okay, saw a naked woman out there and really enjoyed myself. Probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, Can you, can you like help me pray about this? What do you brought her over? What if he confessed the adultery? Before the murder, now apparently Uriah was a pretty bad dude, so David might have died. <laughs> but, um, but would David have killed him? You see, we confess the small to avoid the big. Had David confessed any one of those things along the way, the likelihood is that he would have not committed bigger and worse and more consequence-laden sins down the line. But he didn't. Guys, if we will take the time and accept the discomfort of honestly confessing sinfulness in our hearts before it gets completely out of control, we can avoid a lot of really nasty consequences in the future. Confess the small to avoid the big. That's how it works. So let's talk about a, a little bit about how we Confess. The first question that we have to to attack is, to whom do we do this? And the answers here are very simple. First of all, we confess our sins to God. We talk to Him. We tell Him the truth. We are honest with Him. We've seen David model this all through the verses that we've been studying of Psalm 51. We tell God what we've done because we already know that He knows. We humble ourselves to acknowledge that we have fallen short. We have missed the mark, and we tell Him the truth. But there are also situations, I believe, in which it is important, I would even say critical, for us to confess to other believers. Other believers. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Circle that phrase, you may be healed. Confession, when we open ourselves up and tell the truth about ourselves, leads to prayer, which leads to healing. You can do this on a phone call over lunch. It doesn't have to be a perfect setup or situation. Just pick a trusted person, someone that you know, someone that you know loves you, and tell the truth. Own what you're struggling with. Now, let me give you a couple of pointers here. My personal encouragement would be that this trustworthy person is of the same gender unless you're doing it with your spouse, right? Same gender, unless you're doing it with your spouse. Otherwise, you're opening up way too many potential cans of worms, right? But the simple act of confessing to another does not heal us. God heals us. Confess, pray, then healed, right? God heals us. But the act of confession has real benefits, namely accountability. When we know that somebody else knows and they're going to check in on us, The reality is, we try to sin less because we know we're going to be held accountable for it. Secondarily, there is a great benefit in knowing that you're not the only sinner in the room. Because I've sat down in confession myself, and there's something really freeing about hearing that other person say, Yeah, I used to struggle with that too. Yeah, I made that mistake once too. We don't feel alone anymore. And even more so, we know that if God can help them change, then he can help us change. But one word of warning, be careful who you confess to. Be careful who you confess to. Confession should be done with a person who is a believer. Now, it doesn't have to be a priest or a pastor or anyone with any kind of religious job. James says, confess your sins to each other, meaning fellow believers. So any Christian can hear your confession as long as, as long as they have the biblical consistency enough to tell you that your sin is in fact sin. As long as they are willing to look you in the eye and say, yeah, that's wrong. All right, any believer that can't do that, don't confess to them. Because if they're not going to hold you accountable, if they're not going to tell you the truth, if they're not going to point out the flaws in your life and tell you where you're going wrong, then they're not helpful to you. Secondly, that person needs to be trustworthy and not given to gossip. The last thing that you need is if you're legitimately trying to get help and legitimately trying to be better and you want to live the Christian life and you want to be more consistent in your faith, the last thing you need is somebody that's going to go out and talk about you. I would go so far as to encourage you to ask if they have ever had to confess themselves before you offer your confession to them. Because I am of the opinion that you can't appropriately hear a confession until you've had to give one of your own. Now as we wrap up this morning, I want to take a moment to think briefly about what confession achieves the Bible is clearly give us, giving us examples that we should confess, but what can we expect it to do in our lives? I'm going to give you two things. There are way more, and I, if I had another hour, I could give them to you, but there's two that I want to focus on this morning. The first is this. Confession brings joy, relief, and freedom to us. If you've ever confessed something that was weighing on you like David's sin must have been weighing on him, you know how relieving it is to just have it off your chest. Even if the consequences are bad, the fallout's terrible, the reality is there is a joy and a relief to be found in confession because you're just not walking around wondering when and if somebody's going to find out anymore. Verse 12, restore to me, David says, the joy of your salvation. Underline that phrase. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Simply put, David's saying he was able to experience the joy of God again because he had gotten this off his chest. He's saying, God, I've told the truth now. Please just let me feel joyful. Again. Let me feel alive again. Let me feel uncrushed by the weight of this evil. He wasn't left wondering anymore how bad it would be if someone found out. He wasn't left wondering if God would forgive him because he had already heard that he had been forgiven. He had the chance to move on because he had told the truth. Now, one of the, one of the powerful truths of the Bible is that we have to confess our sin before we can even be saved. Think about that. We can't put our hope in Christ without first acknowledging that we are sinners that need to be saved. It can't happen any other way. Trust me, if appropriate confession is just as much a part of the process as believing in Jesus as the Son of God. If you you have head knowledge and head belief that Jesus is the Son of God, but you can't even dig down deep enough to acknowledge your own sin, I'm fairly certain the Bible's clear. You are not a follower of Christ. It's a part of the process. Confession can help restore to us the joy of salvation and help us be free from the fear and isolation that comes from our sin. But there's another equally important result of confession, and that's this. It leads to the service of other sinners. It leads to the service of other sinners. David says, then, so after I have received that re-experiencing of the joy of salvation, after I've gotten this off my chest, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. I will show other people who are sinning, just like I was sinning, how to confess and get it off their chest so that they can be right with God too. They will turn back to you, David says. When you are a person who has confessed and been forgiven of your sins, you are able to help others who need to do that as well. You are able to be a person who can guide others to the forgiveness that you have found. So guys, this morning we're going to close, and we're going we're to do something that we, we did a couple of weeks ago. We're going to take a little time and we're going to pray. But this morning, we're going to pray very specifically. Each and every one of us in this room are going to pray prayers of confession. If you are willing, you don't have to. I mean, I'm not going to make anybody. But I'm going to offer you some time this morning to pray your own prayers of confession. I'm going to give you a little space for God to speak to you about what it is going on in your life that you need to confess and get rid of, what you need to change. Now lights are going to be dark, nobody's going to see, Don't nobody pray out loud. Don't, we don't, this, isn't, this isn't for anybody but you. We're going to take some time, we're going to think about where it is that God is guiding us and how he wants us to live that's different than the way we're living now. And we're going to tell him the truth, we're going to own it. We're going to tell him if we don't want to give up whatever it is, that we know is sin in our lives. We're going to tell him if we do want to give it up, but we're really struggling to do so. We're just going to tell him the truth. We're going to confess the sin as sin. Now on that box in the bottom of your outline, you're going to see two things, uh, potential next steps for this week. And the first one is this. After you've prayed this prayer of confession with God, I would encourage you I really would, to find somebody in your life that you know you can trust, someone who has a Christ-like character, someone who believes what you believe, and I would encourage you to get with them and share this confession with them too. I want you to know, all right, beyond any shadow of a doubt, I've done this at least two or three times in the last two weeks myself, because I don't want anybody in this room to think that anybody up here is asking anyone out there to do something that we're not doing. Right? I want to encourage you. There's freedom and joy and relief to be found in confession, And there's something about having another set of eyeballs on the problems going on in your life. Secondly, I would encourage you to be here over the next couple of weeks. These next two fasting and intentional rest are going to be really important services. Um, and really important lessons in how you can continue to grow deeper in Christ, and I would encourage you to be here for those. So let's take a minute, get comfortable, and we're just going to pray a prayer of confession this morning. Father, we come to you, and in this next couple of moments, we just want to tell you the truth about us. We want you to see us for who we are. And we want you to help us change. Father, you've heard from so many in this room right now telling you the truth about who we are. And God, the reality is is much of it's not very pretty. The things that go on in our hearts and minds are ugly, and the fallout of them in our lives is often painful to others. Father, forgive us and help us to know in this moment the first assumption of confession, and that is that you are merciful. Father, it always comes back to that. You are merciful. We trust you in this moment. We seek you. We ask for your help. Make us different, God, we beg of you. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in us.